My young cousin has a more difficult road to travel than others. You seem to understand him better than my husband. Bridge to all decks. Welcome aboard a very, very special episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I am Steve Morris from the future, coming back to make sure that we get this episode exactly right. You're, you're, you're going back to the past to make sure that young Steve Morris will one day ask Scott Mance, hey, maybe we should do a Star Trek podcast called Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. That's exactly right. Well, we are very excited because not only... Are we going to dive deep into what is widely hailed correctly as the very best episode of the animated series, which is more than just the best episode of the animated series. It's as good as the very best episodes of the original series. But we are joined by our very special guest. He was the voice of young Spock on Yesteryear, which makes him literally the second actor to ever play Spock. Please welcome aboard William Simpson. Well, thank you very much for such a kind introduction. I'm honored to be here. And thank you for remembering me 50 years later. <laughs> well, you know, your place in Star Trek history is is really, really special because of all the other actors like Zachary Quinto and the J.J. Abrams film and right. certainly uh, Ethan Peck in uh, Strange New Worlds. You are the you're the second guy. Like like you were after oh. Leonard Nimoy. You're the one. <laughs> oh, you're giving me a big head now. Hey, <laughs> but thank you. That's terrific. Well, well, yesteryear, you know, when the original series ended and the animated series started up, uh, you know, Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana made sure that the animated show was and <laughs> it was Star Trek, and it still holds up as Star Trek because you know we're diving deep into these animated episodes now, and they hold up under scrutiny. But how did you even? get this part, and how old were you at the time? Well, it's a story. I was nine years old, and I had just started in the business. I was uh, going on auditions, and I had done a few things, but uh, I was the agent called, and I was sent on an audition for a new animated Star Trek, and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting, you know? And from the very beginning, as soon as my mom and I arrived at the filmation offices there, I think it was Reseda, California, there in the, in the valley of L.A., and normally when you go on an audition, you're given what they call sides, a couple of pages, a scene to read, right? Well, the unusual thing I found unusual, like we go in and the receptionist hands me a pretty sizable stack of papers. And I'm like, oh, do I have to learn all this? Or, you know, so my mom and I sit down on the couch in the reception area and I just start going through the pages when I'm called into the recording studio. And so I go into the into the you know, stand behind the microphone, put my papers on the stand, and it's Hal Sutherland in the booth. And they start rolling tape, and he says, "Okay, Billy, uh, just read the lines that are marked Young Spock." And so I start, you know, reading them, and I get about halfway through the first page, and he said, and he interrupts me and says, "Now, Billy, are you familiar with the character of Spock?" And I say, uh, not really. <laughs> Nine years old, I wasn't really following the original series right. very much. It had been off the air for quite a while. And so he, he tries to tell me that Spock speaks with little emotion. So try it again with not so much feeling. And I'm thinking, well, that's a very, very strange direction, direction yeah. to be given. 
So I start over, and I think I'm interrupted a second time. And he says, no, no, just, just read the lines, just kind of flat. Just don't put any feelings. So I start over. I'm like, okay, what the heck? So I start reading the lines, and he chimes in. That's good. That's good. Keep going like that. And I keep going, and in the back of my mind, I distinctly remember thinking, this is just bad acting. <laughs> because here I was taking acting lessons and just starting out, nine years old, I want to do the right thing. And I'm like, what kind of <laughs> direction is this? So I'm going along, and I'm, it was all cold on top of that because I haven't, hadn't even had a chance to look through all the pages before I went in. And I'm starting to come across these strange words. And one of them, I didn't find out until just recently when I was interviewed for that amazing animated Star Trek book, Aaron Harvey and Rich Sheppis, that Dorothy Fontana, who wrote Yesteryear, uh, was still a bit put off by the fact that the name of the pet Salot was mispronounced. She wanted it to be pronounced Ichaya. And in the script, it's spelled I-C-H-A-Y-A. And I said... Ichaya. And I wasn't corrected. I don't think there was a pronunciation guide in the booth or anything. So I understand that in the same way, that in a similar way that we went back in time to find what changed the course, in real life, that pronunciation error, they had to adapt the other actors. Make sure you say Ichaya, but Dorothy was not pleased. That's with right. That. That's right. The other actors actually had to go back and re-loop the dialogue to say uh, I because of this stupid kid. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, because I now I'm confused. So you're in an audition. Yes. Why did the other actors have to re-loop ah, their dialogue? I, oh, I, I, I the punchline is so this ended up being used. The audition tape is what was used in the episode. So, continuing, I go on another, another line. You can hear me. I just listened to the, watched the episode yesterday. You can hear me hesitating and stammering over this one line. Um, my Salot fought a La Macha in the Langan foothills. You know, I have no idea what I'm saying, and you can tell by listening to it that I have no idea what I'm saying. I didn't even get a chance to do it again. And then one more thing. I'm sorry I'm so long-winded about no, this. No, please, by I, all means. I want to set the record straight on this one thing. Now, you've got to remember, there I am in the audition. I'm not being fed the preceding lines, okay? I'm reading all of my lines isolated. So when you don't hear the preceding lines, sometimes your response, your inflection, might be a little bit off, or in some cases, considerably off. So there's a scene where I'm told that I, 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 we can't bring my pet Salot to a healer because he's too big or whatever. My, you know, he's wounded. We can't take him to a healer. And Young Spock's line is, then I will bring a healer here. Right? Makes perfect sure. sense. Now, I did not hear or read the preceding line that introduced the idea of a healer. So when it came time for my line, I say, I will bring a healer here, as though I was introducing the idea of the healer. So it's highly illogical that reading coming after someone mentioning a healer. I will bring a healer here. Yes, I will bring a healer here. So for anyone who's studied the episode and has been bothered by that reading, as I have, I hope you will accept that explanation in my defense. I rest my case. <laughs> so <clears throat> now I want to I know exactly. I know you were nine years old. This is a long time ago. But I want to know exactly. So they record, they record you for this quote-unquote audition. And by the way, all the directions that the director gave you are their bad directions. 
That is that. So, so you feeling like this is bad yeah, acting? Yeah, yeah. It's like telling an actor just do less, be flat. That's a really, <laughs> that is not a good direction. There are other ways to direct that. So they did it. What happened next? Okay, so I finished reading all reading all these lines, and uh, thank you. You know, so uh-huh. we, my mom and I go home, and a couple days later, my agent calls and said, "I got the job." And I'm so excited. And the agent is like, well, the good news is you don't have to go back. And I'm like, what? Uh, They're going to use the audition tape. And I remember, nine years old, my reaction was, no, 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 no. Because I knew it was terrible. I was not proud of that at all. And so not being given an opportunity, and especially, you know, that correction, uh, the pronunciation, how much would it have cost to bring I didn't command big bucks, whatever scale would have been. And then they just sent me a check for whatever, you know, I worked maybe, what was it, a half an hour in there maybe? And whatever the day scale would have been for that at the time. And then that was it. So uh, it was very disappointing. You might have made the fastest Star Trek history ever. (laughs) Half an hour work. Star Trek history. Yeah, half an hour of work, and you're 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 the second. I didn't even know it was work. It, it, was yeah. just, it was just a confusing audition. Is all it was. Well, you see, I didn't know that that was what happened until I read the animated series book by Rich and Aaron. Right. And when I read that, I was like, I can completely understand. You're like, wait a minute, no, I want to go back and really give it my best shot. Yeah. But over these years, since I've been watching it, and I did start watching the animated series. Back in the day, you know, when it was on Saturday mornings mm-hmm. um, and, and periodically through the years, never for one moment did I ever say to myself, boy, that that young spot, that could have been better. I thought you did a magnificent job. Oh. If that's just your audition and well. to me, you knocked it out of the park or out oh. of Vulcan, <laughs> then I got to say, William, that's bravo to you well how nice of you to say thank you (laughs) it's it's real i mean you know you're looking at it from your perspective saying like yeah i didn't like give it my best shot and i'm looking at it's like god this for this kid nine-year-old boy to to voice an iconic character even in 1973 didn't even realize what i was doing and and didn't know what i was doing and i wonder because the whole time i was there and as we were leaving filmation i never saw anyone else normally when you're on an audition you see a bunch of your your competition sitting in the in the lobby, and you give them a side eye, you know. And, uh, but uh, there was no other kids in there, and I didn't see anybody as we were leaving. Now, I, that's not to say I was the only one who auditioned, but I'm very curious to know. Uh, they probably did this with everyone who auditioned. Oh. I would assume so, but I have no knowledge of who else auditioned. I really wonder how this came about because clearly there's a story here we don't know, like. I don't know. Their budgets were tight. Their schedule was tight. They needed the the voice track to go to animatics, and maybe they sent your voice track to have an anim track, like a temp track. And then they went, you know what? This temp track is pretty. Like, how long is it between when you did the audition and when your agent called to say you booked the gig? I think it would have been just a couple of days. Yeah, because normally you get a call back, you know, right. or something. Exactly. It's, so, it is a weird. This is a weird circumstance, and I gotta say, this is. The, the the cheap sort of slapdash nature of some elements of the animated series. Yeah. This isn't the way they should. And, and while right. I think the episode totally works, I also bet you could have done a better job. Oh, you know? But you know what? You know what, William and Steve? Like, I never even thought for a second that there were, like you said, 
William, other people in the room, other kids in the room waiting to go in and do their audition, where maybe they listen to their audition tapes and say, you know what, this guy, Billy, Billy Simpson, he kind of crushed it. Let's just use his tape. Uh, oh, you think maybe they, this, I came after all the others? Or, or maybe you came before all the mm, others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but either way, maybe, maybe there were other kids there. I mean, there's, I, I guess there's no way of, that we'll ever know. No, but, but I uh, wish I could. I worked for Filmation a couple more times after that. I wish I would have, you know, asked some questions about that. But, uh, but that was the strangest of all the auditions. I was quite active as a kid, you know, in show business, lots of auditions, you know, and that was definitely the most unique to remember it so vividly 50 years later, you know, you know, filmation, you know, my, my uh, entry point into filmation was like the Brady kids, uh, you know, uh, those kinds of shows, but, and, and seeing the name Hal Sutherland mm-hmm. at the end of every episode, mm-hmm. uh, but I never thought to ask like, what was he like? Like, what was what was he like when you met him? And like, when was he like a nurturing director, or was he just like all business? Well, I didn't. I don't think I met him outside of the booth because he called me in and he went in the booth and I was in the, the side with the microphone. He was behind the glass right. with the little talk box there, and I think he just said thank you and we left. And I don't think there was any interaction. And you heard what kind of direction he gave me. <laughs> so I can't really speak for, for him. I'm sure he was a great guy, but I don't think we had any interaction. And then uh, I don't, because then I went on, I did, uh, they, a, a year or two later, they did a animated feature film of, of Oliver Twist with uh, uh, Davy Jones as the Artful Dodger. And they got me to do the singing voice of Oliver. Apparently the kid they got to do Oliver... I guess you couldn't sing well enough, so they, I, I think I was requested for that, which was interesting, because I remember, if it was Sutherland or not, commenting on Star Trek at the time, and then a couple years later, I was in a live-action show called Arc 2 for Filmation, but I don't, I don't know if Hal Sutherland had anything to do with that one. I don't recall. By the way, I totally remember that Oliver Twist when I was a kid. And you and and I was I did a small amount of research on you, and you are also part of another formative thing for me growing up, which is you were involved with Dr. Demento. I still am. You still to are this day. Dr. Demento, uh uh he's he's been doing his show now for fifty-three years. Unreal. He's eighty-one years old. Wow. He started in nineteen seventy, and now it's it's an online show. Um, but I started in nineteen eighty, so that's been going on forty with forty-two and a half, September of eighty. I was sixteen years old. This is when we had the live four-hour show on KMET in Los Angeles, a legendary rock station in L.A. Four hours every Sunday night. Dr. Demento ruled the airwaves, number one show. And I joined the cast then, and it's been through various stations and syndication over the years. He hasn't been able to get rid of me since. Wow. And as, as a character of Whimsical Will, I do the Demented News each week. I still do that from my home studio. And back in the days, I used to deliver cassettes to him and then burn CDs and now MP3s. And yeah, it's evolved over evolved. the years. Wow. A lot easier now. Modern technology. But, uh, but you, were, you were a Demento or a Dementite? Or de- de- I, remember, I remember people getting tapes and the tapes would go, the cassettes would go ah. around. Like when I was in junior high and that's what I heard. Because you were listening what part of the country? Then? San Francisco. San Francisco, yeah. okay. I was I was in Philadelphia. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He had yeah. pretty good coverage uh, yeah, back in the did. day. Oh, we, we was very popular at Dr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, So, in yeah, Philly. Barry Hansen, I owe so much 
to him. He's oh. been just a terrific guy. And of all the people in show business, you asked about what people are like. And I worked for quite a while from age nine to about, oh, 11 or 12. And, you know, I saw the harder side of show business. Fortunately, no traumatic experiences, mm -hmm. but you saw the business side. But Dr. Demento, Barry Hansen, has been one of the most, the kindest, if not the kindest, most nurturing showbiz person I've ever, ever known. And 42 and a half years later, I can still say that. Did so. you have a chance to watch the uh, Weird, Ank Weird Al Yankovic movie, <laughs> Weird? <laughs> I did. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's so, it's amazing that he went, made the documentary a parody so that nothing in that is true. <laughs> totally. <you know? laughs> so some people are still trying to figure that out, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was a quite an interesting take. Uh, it was uh, it was a really really good movie. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like when when you finally got a chance to watch Yesteryear, like what do you remember about about the first time you saw it? Did you were you like every other actor, like you know, zeroing in on your performance, well, or were you sure. able to like really just like oh that was really good? I now in Los Angeles, if I if memory serves, yesteryear was the first episode to air, right? Because of George Takei. You're really good. You mentioned that yeah. in the last episode. Yes, that the is correct. Equal time thing because he was running for council or something. That is correct. So so there was an equal uh, equal airtime yeah. for people running yeah. for city council in L.A. So even though across the rest of the country. Right. Yesteryear was the second episode of the animated series mm -hmm. to air on mm -hmm. September 15th, 1973, which makes it the 81st episode of Star Trek to air. But in Los Angeles, due to the premiere episode being delayed until December, the first time anyone in Los Angeles saw an animated episode of Star Trek, it was, wow. in fact, yesteryear. It was yesteryear. And, and I was, uh, you know, I was awaiting it with the trepidation because I still was stewing about my my lack of performance in it. I wondered what it was going to sound like. Um, but like you gentlemen said, uh, you mapped out your Saturday mornings. It was a ritual for all of us back in the day. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Getting up the crack of dawn with your bowl of cereal and, uh, and getting out the TV guide and circling which show you're going to watch sure. in each time slot, you know? And, uh, you know, shout out to MeTV for bringing back Saturday morning and weekday morning cartoons. Absolutely. That's terrific. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, to be honest with, <laughs> I hate to be honest, I probably wouldn't have chosen, I don't know, what was opposite Star Trek in that time slot? Oh, I don't remember. I looked it up. There was Genie and there was something else I didn't remember what it was. Okay. So. I, I didn't care what was opposite because I just watched Right. <laughs> I wonder what I would have chosen had I been <laughs> given my <laughs> job. I don't know. But, of course, I watched it. And, um, um, but like you said, just zeroing in on, you know, worried about my performance line to line because I knew it wasn't, I wasn't pleased with it. But it was, uh, it was quite a, uh, quite a wall to hit. You're, you're spending the morning with, you know, Sid and Marty Croft and, a lot of very lighthearted, frivolous <laughs> kitty shows. And then, whoa, you know, right? What is this? This is heavy duty. This it, is, you know, heavy duty indeed. I have to say that I, it had been quite some time since I watched Yesteryear, even though I always knew it was highly regarded as the best episode of the animated series. During this rewatch, I was completely floored by how well. It holds up. It's not just the best episode of the animated series. It's one of the very best episodes of Star Trek, 
period. Like you could put yesteryear alongside sitting on the edge of forever or doomsday machine or a mock time or mirror mirror. And it would not be a distant second at all. It would be right there on the bookshelf, right alongside. And I couldn't help but think like, wow, if this had been a fourth season episode of the original series, it would have been really, really something. What was your take on that? Um, I like it a lot. I don't quite put it up as high as you do. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think there's. I am absolutely certain when we come to the end of the animated series and we rank our episodes as we did with the original series, this is going to be the number one it's, episode. It's got to be. The I, it, one. It's it's a really good half hour of Star Trek. I don't put it up with those other ones the way that you do because of the limitations of the medium and some other things, but. Not only is it a really good episode of Star Trek, it's actually really formative to Star Trek. It is essential, I think. It is canon. Yeah. You know, definitely. absolutely canon. And and I gotta tell you also, uh, you know, when we get to this point in in our in our play-by-play, a deep dive, uh, there is a particular reason why this episode did hit me uh, in a way that it never had an impact every other time I'd seen it. And I'll get to that point. But one thing I will say is that when I was rewatching it, you know, you're watching it and you see the opening credits, you hear Shatner's voiceover, which is the same voiceover from the original series, the space, the final frontier. That's the exact same one. Um, but then when the ending opening credits are, are over and you see the opening title card for the name of the episode, and it says written by DC Fontana. And I just smiled because if there is any one single person next to Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and Bob Justman, who who is the creative force and inspiration behind the very best of Star Trek, it is DC Fontana. Mm. And seeing her name mm. again on Star Trek. Did make me smile. You knew you were in good hands. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's when people talk about the animated series, whether or not it's canon. I can't speak for the entire series, but I know over the years I've heard that yesteryear in particular provides a credible backstory for Spock. And uh, people often refer to this. In fact, what the 2009 film recreated the playground scene, right? I was amazed to see that. When I saw Star Trek 2009 in 2009. <laughs> the date I actually saw it was April 21st, 2009 at a press screening. And there was that scene, and this is in a different timeline. The Kelvin timeline is what they call it for the J.J. Abrams uh, a trio of films that he directed and produced. And there was that scene where Spock is being picked on, bullied by the other Vulcan kids. I said to myself, I turned to my former wife at the time, mm. I said, oh my God, it's yesteryear. And she said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, I'll show you later. <laughs> you know, but there is so much uh, about this episode that yeah, where certain, certain uh, I guess, authorities in Star Trek may sort of be dismissive about other aspects of the animated show, but they'll go, except for yesteryear. Mm. That's the one. That's canon. Right. And it turned out to be canon in, in more ways than just that one, as we'll, as we'll, we'll get to. It's, it's funny. I'm going to give you the things that are going on in the world, and here's what I was thinking about. When we did this for the original series, and it was when they were shooting it, we were thinking about what this was what Shatner was hearing on the radio. This is what, you know, Ralph was, was reading about in the newspaper on his way to work. Well, now we're doing the animated series and us watching it, and man, 
I was blissfully unaware of any of the news that was going on in the world when I was watching the animated series that has nothing to do with my experience whatsoever. But this episode aired on September 15th, 1973, on September, so in the week before, on September 10th, and this is some heavy stuff that was going on, the Chilean military uh, officer informed the CIA of their upcoming coup against the Allende government in Chile. And this is, depending on your politics and depending on how you look at the world, either the CIA went, that's interesting information, we're not going to have anything to do with overthrowing a government in South America, or the CIA was involved in this whole thing. But the next day, on September 11th, uh, Chile's government was overthrown. Allende refused to surrender. He was hiding out in the presidential residence, which was bombed by the military. It was a military coup where he died. And again, depending on which view of history you look at, he was either killed by the attack or he committed suicide. The official uh, statement is that he committed suicide. <laughs> um, and Augusto Pinochet took over and had a pretty scary and horrendous dictatorship over Chile for the next 16 years which was definitely supported by the U.S. Whether or not we were involved in the coup might be debatable, but we definitely like Pinochet, even though the people that lived under him maybe didn't like him so much. <laughs> um, another thing that happened, a much smaller tragedy on September 11th, 1973, was the first known fatality of a flying car. Henry's <laughs> Yes, Henry Smolinski was killed along with his passenger shortly after taking off from the Ventura County Airport. Flying car. A flying car. Would you like to know what model car his quote unquote <laughs> well, flying car you have was built on? on the edge of our seats. <laughs> it was a Ford Pinto. Oh, oh Pinto! No. <laughs> oh yeah. Dude, did it? That was our lighter. That was our lighter news uh, item no. because back in heavier news uh, on the same day, uh, Egyptian President Sadat met with leaders from Jordan and Syria to plan their invasion of Israel, which would happen 25 wow. days later on Yom Kippur. Wow. I, I remember, if I may say, I remember 73, uh, 73, 74, the energy crisis oh, sure. was big. Oh, yeah. And and I remember I, I worked in, in Las Vegas in 74 in, at the Plaza Hotel in the Music Man for six weeks, and I loved Vegas, but they had to turn off all the lights no. during the energy crisis. We had to conserve everything, electricity. And imagine Vegas, downtown Vegas back in the day. Dark. Dark. Uh -huh. It was devastating. I'd be scared. Uh -huh. That would be scary. Yeah, would be scary. <laughs> <laughs> what is Vegas without the lights? So that's what was going on when this episode aired. Wow. And would you like to go back to yesteryear? Let's turn back time to yesteryear. So we start off, we hear a captain's log, and we hear something about a time vortex. And then the first thing we see is so exciting to a Star Trek fan, because there is the Guardian. The Guardian of Forever. So, so a couple things right off the bat. So the Guardian, not only is Yesteryear regarded as a sequel to Journey to Babel, which was written by DC Fontana, it is also a sequel to the City on the Edge of Forever, which is the Citizen Kane of Star Trek episodes, written by Harlan Ellison and a whole bunch of other Star Trek uh, staffers there. But absolutely, it's so great to see the Guardian. And they call it, uh, Captain Kirk in his log, he calls it the planet with the time vortex. It still does not have a name. The planet does not have a name. But what I noticed, the star date in the Captain's log is 5373.4. 
So, William, when we did our deep dive through the original series, we went in in the order that the episodes were produced. But if you go by the order of the star dates, 5373.4 puts the adventure of yesteryear right in the middle of the empath Mm. and the mark of Gideon. Oh, interesting. Wow, okay. That is very interesting. And we see also, because now we're going to have aliens, because we're in the animated series. We see this bird creature. We see this woman waiting there. And then Kirk and a red guy come back through the portal. What a trip, Bones. Orion at the dawn of its civilization. And McCoy has this weird reaction. Who's he, Jim? Who's he, Jim? So right there now, sitting on the edge of forever, is like a, the, a, a quintessential example of, a but, of the butterfly effect taking shape. In the case of the city on the edge of forever, it meant that all of all of the Federation never even happened. In this case, the Federation is still there. The Enterprise is still there. Kirk is still recognized as the captain of the Enterprise. But when when Kirk comes back through with uh, with a red shirt whose uh, whose name in Star Trek Log One, written by Alan Dean Foster, is Erickson, um, they don't re- they don't recognize Spock. And before we get into all that, uh, the question I have for you is: What do you think it was like for Captain Kirk to be back on the planet with the Guardian of Forever? after the tragedy of Edith Keeler? Well, I will give you two answers. One is that it should have been really hard, really hard. And two is they are clearly not paying any attention to that at all because he's happy and in a good mood. And Yeah, he's like uh, yeah, glee, that, filled with glee that he just yeah. witnessed this history of Orion. Yeah, so, so I think that they, it's really interesting because this is like kind of something we might call fan service today of like, hey, here's this thing that the fans of the show will recognize. But they didn't do the character thing that you're talking about, which is having him... This is a trauma. He's, none of that is in this show. Right. It should have been. And it would. Have, and if it was a live action episode. Maybe. Maybe it would, it would have, have been. been. Yeah. By the way, when, you know, he asks. What do you mean, who is he? You know, Mr. Spock. Right, I don't, Jim. They should have a reg- instantly figured out what was going on, you know, instead of thinking that somehow McCoy is joking with him or something. Now, what, when you were watching this episode just recently for, for this conversation, what was your impression uh, of the episode, especially with the way with the way it started, did you did it did it all come back to you uh, uh, the episode itself, or was it had it been so long where you felt like you were watching it for the first time? Oh, I, I I'm pretty sure I remembered most of it. It it a lot of it confused me, having not been as well versed in Star Trek history as I as I should be, or as you folks. <laughs> so I I was uh, just kind of playing along. I knew the relationship between the characters, um, but I didn't know. I, I didn't really understand the significance of a lot of it. You know, I do know, and I think one of your later questions about about uh, uh, the way the episode goes and the the heavy subject matter that it encounters was quite remarkable. Still is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they beam back up to the Enterprise, and now Scotty doesn't recognize Mr. Spock, and Kirk says, I don't know what's going on, but the first officer of this ship will be treated with respect. And we hear a voice that says, Captain, I assure you no one has ever treated me otherwise. And that is where we meet first officer Felon, voiced by James Dewin. I think they used Jimmy's voice too much. They used him seven times just in this 24-minute episode 
alone, and I agree with you. It really, it really, I mean, he's great. I love him. Obviously, I'm never going to say anything bad about him, <laughs> but he has certain rhythms to his voice, and they start to get very predict- recognizable, you know? Well, because even like uh, James Doohan, who voiced Scotty and right. played Scotty in the original show, he was the voice of the Guardian. In the original series, in City on the Edge of Forever, it was Bartel LaRue, whose voice was like booming and godlike in some ways, mm-hmm. in many ways, whereas uh, as voiced by James Doohan, the Guardian sounded very elderly and frail. So here's my new theory. Yes. They brought in Jimmy to voice young Spock. <laughs> it didn't work well. <laughs> and that is why they pulled your audition. Dude, beat out James Doohan. They could have sped up his voice. It could have been like, you know, South Park or a chipmunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they didn't use his audition tape. I'm sure he had <laughs> At this point, we hear that Thelen has actually been the first officer for five years, and finally, Kirk starts to get it and goes, oh, I think we've got some kind of time paradox. So so here's the interesting thing. When we hear that Thelen has been the first officer on the Enterprise for five years, first of all, two things I thought about is this is probably one of the first times in, in Star Trek, including the original show, of course, where we know where we are on the five-year mission. We're in the fifth year of the five-year mission. But that also supports my other theory, which is that the first number of the star date indicates the year of the five-year mission that the Enterprise is actually on. Like I said, the uh, star date we find out is 5373.4, the first number being five. So that supports the first officer for five years, or on f- the fifth year of the five-year mission. So I have been uh, validated. I am going to continue to validate you. I'm going to say this theory is awful. This theory is awesome. I'm also going to say I'm also going to say this. It actually doesn't really make sense because why would you have a dating system that's based on when a ship launched? Like, how would you remember when the heck that was? Well, the star date. It's a star date. It's not the year. It's a star date. It's the log, the star date of the Enterprise on this mission. So there you go. I mean, come on. Give me a, throw me a boom. Uh, that's amazing. Listen, again, I'm saying it's awesome, and I'm also saying it doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, and now we're going to have a scene that should be very familiar to Star Trek fans, which is the, we're going to sit down and try to figure out this mystery. In and, the briefing room, which is very Star Trek. And what we hear is the first thing is, whatever the heck they did in Orion back at the past, there's no way that could have affected this. And that Spock is the only one that seems to be affected. Everything else seems perfectly normal. And we ask if they've checked the records. There is no Vulcan named Spock serving with the Starfleet in any capacity. And they ask about Sarek's family, and he says, Amanda, wife of Sarek, born on Earth as Amanda Grayson. Is that when we first hear her name? That is the first time we find out that Amanda's maiden name is Grayson. Like you said, William, there is so much about this episode an animated episode that is less than half the length of a live-action original series episode, yet it contributed so much to Vulcan history, to Spock's past, to Star Trek history. I I mean, it even kind of went a little further than Amok Time and Journey to Babel in establishing so much about Vulcan culture, especially as yesteryear progresses, when we get into the whole uh, maturity test that young Spock has to take. Oswan ordeal is remarkable, yes. Um, (laughs) And and I think that I misspoke in our last episode, because we were talking about 
how it didn't really have the emotional content. It had a lot of the elements of Star Trek, but didn't have the emotional elements of a full Star Trek episode. And I said something about, well, they only have, you know, 22 minutes, and that's not a lot of time to develop these emotional characters. And this episode proves that entirely wrong. Agreed. You know, because in this next moment, what we hear is... A couple separated after the death of their son. And in that moment, just like good filmmaking in live TV, the camera pushes in on Mr. Spock. And that reaction to hearing about your parents' separation after your death, that's a lot. That's a lot. And that's a lot for a show that is on Saturday mornings. I mean, we're only like not even five minutes into the episode and we're hearing that Spock had died, that the parents had separated. Uh, you know, when when you were rewatching and you get to moments like this, William, do, do you thought, do you think to yourself like, wow, this is pretty pretty far out and pretty mature for a show that's supposed to be on Saturday mornings and kids are watching. Absolutely. And I, I could, I could just hear a lot of channels changing. I mean, I could hear the kids, like I said, that had spent the morning with, with just the silly, you know, frivolous stuff. And it's like, what's this? And then I could also hear, uh, possibly the parents craning their necks from the kitchen and saying, what are you watching? Yeah. You know, or the older siblings or something. What is this? You know, and then sitting down, the kids go off and play, and then the parents <laughs> finish watching the show on yeah. Saturday morning. <laughs> I, you know? I actually think it's so, it's so silly because if you look at the most successful stories for all of children's entertainment, so-called children's entertainment, Peter Parker... Dead uncle, dead family, Superman, dead family, Batman, dead family, Harry Potter, dead family. Like they're, they're, they all have dead. Death is so constant. In right in children's in, uh, in the most successful children's stuff of all time. Fascinating, you know. So uh, and then, but to make matters worse, it's not just that he died. The next thing we hear is the wife was killed in a shuttle accident at Luna Port on her way home to Earth. Ambassador Sarek has not remarried. So, so the stakes of the time change are not as galaxy-wide as they were in City on the Edge of Forever. But in this case, the stakes of the time change are personal because not only uh, it's Spock's family been completely destroyed by this, but Kirk's best friend does not exist. Yeah. So we're back down on the planet trying to figure out what happened and what we— find out is that the other people were monitoring Vulcan at the time that Kirk and Spock were back in Orion's past and that they say, oh, it's somewhere in the last 20 to 40 years. But one thing that I notice during this exchange is that there is a being there that looks like a, a bird yeah. that is a Federation office officer, and this is Federation historian Alik Ohm. And a lot of the names, like... Uh, uh, Erickson and Bates, uh, who was on the monitor when they were in the briefing room, who looked like Chekhov, but it was not Chekhov. A lot of these names came from what I'm holding in my hand right now, which is Star Trek Log One, written by Alan Dean Foster. Alan Dean Foster adapted all the animated series episodes and expanded upon them to such a great deal. He gave characters names that didn't have them in the episode, and he also expanded on uh, on the background of the episode we were watching. In this case, he gave this whole backstory, Alan Dean Foster gave this whole backstory to the planet of the Guardian of Forever, which is incredible. And 
unlike the James Blish adaptations, which were short adaptations of the original series episodes, Alan Dean Foster's adaptations of the animated series episodes make for excellent reading if you are a Star Trek fan. Have you ever read your longer version of... I have not. I've been aware of it, and I keep meaning to get a copy of it, but I'd be fascinated to read it. Oh, my it. God. i, I got to hook you up, my friend. I, will, <laughs> I, will I am going to hook you up. <laughs> but, but so this bird creature, this uh, Federation historian that is with the landing party... Did it make you think of anything from the original series, an early, early, early episode of the original series, Steve Morris? No, it didn't. Who should it make me think of? I had one of my great epiphanies that I've had okay. from time to time during our deep dives on Enterprise Incidents, Steve. So I'm looking at this Federation historian that looks like a bird, uh, a biped version mm -hmm. of a bird. Remember in... The cage. Yes, it's in the it's in the zoo. It's in the zoo with Captain Pike. Yeah, we see it flapping its wings for a brief moment. Wow! When Pike is looking around at the other creatures in the other cages, we do not see it in the menagerie because that was a shorter version when they used all the flashbacks. But when you watch the cage and Captain Pike first comes to in his cage and he's looking around at the other cages, you will see a bird-like creature, which is from the planet uh, Aurelia. Uh, that also comes from Alan D. Foster's book. But uh, I tied that back to the one that started Well done, sir. Well done. I wonder if they referenced it. It's possible. So, is it on the wall in Trelane's... Uh... Yes. Oh, my God. You remembered our deep dive of the Squire of Gothos. Yes. And that was one of the first things he shot when he was playing around with the with the the fa with the the cells phaser, you there guys you are scary. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome aboard. And they ask about when did Sarek's son die? The boy is recorded as dying during the maturity test. The Cars One, a survival test traditional for young males. And this is again Dorothy Fontana. That lady knew how to write. She knew how to write. Because the next thing is they start to say the date, and Spock cuts them off and says, The 20th day of Tasmin. How do you know this? That was the day my cousin saved my life in the desert when I was attacked by a wild animal. Um, one filmmaking thing I was thinking about as, as, we, were, as we were talking about this is that it's something I, I think we've mentioned on uh, this show, but I definitely have talked about in The Cinephiles, which is the idea that the audience can either be ahead of the characters in the show, with the characters in the show, or behind them, meaning that do they know everything that those characters know? And in this case, this is a case where we as the audience, if we're the more older Star Trek fans, we're ahead. As soon as we see the Guardian of Forever, we know what that is. As soon as Kirk comes back and no one recognizes Spock, we all understand what's going on, even though Kirk doesn't know what's going on. And now at this moment, when they're talking about, I was visited by my cousin, is another opportunity where we can kind of go, oh, I get where this is going to go. Yeah, yeah. See, that's what makes this absolutely classic Star Trek. I mean, this is Star Trek. I'm learning so much 50 years later. This is fascinating. <laughs> so many layers to this. You know, it's easy to dismiss a filmation production as a glorified slideshow, you know. <laughs> sure. But, yeah. but this is uh, when you have somebody like D.C. Fontana writing There's it. More stuff you've there. got It's so rich. It's you know what else is really cool, William? What's that? Hearing you say the word fascinating. <laughs> uh, <okay. laughs> he called himself Selleck. Spock, did Selleck look 
like you do now. Kirk gets it. I believe so, Captain. And I know what you're thinking. It was I who saved myself that other time. So anytime you think too much about time travel stories, they kind of fall apart. So I don't know exactly what them going back to Orion had to do with the, all this. But needless to say, we get what this episode is about. Spock is going to have to go back in time to save himself. Uh, but I do think they, they explain that in that real quick moment of exposition that if Spock was surveying Orion's history while the other Enterprise crew members were surveying Vulcan, then then they were back in time in Vulcan without Spock, and he was not there to save himself. And that's why when they all came back through the Guardian at the different times, that is why Spock's history was erased. Sure, but why would Spock have to go back in time to save himself? Because he... He what he had saved himself all along. Yes, this is where you kind of go, and this is where it's not worth spending that much time but, thinking but about see, it. Wait a minute. Remember at the end of Assignment Earth, mm-hmm. when uh, Kirk and Spock are briefing uh, Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln, Spock says, or maybe it was Kirk who says, this, "We were a part of history all along." It wasn't that the Enterprise almost messed up history by letting the bomb, you know, fall into Earth and explode. Is that the Enterprise was always a part of that history by going back to save it. They, they, they were not fixing anything. They were a part of it the whole time. So Spock going back to save himself, that was the proper timeline. That was the proper history. It was always destiny. It was always a part of history for Spock to impersonate a cousin and and save his young save you, save his younger self. All right. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we come up with the plan. Spock's gonna go back. And one of the problems, of course, is that Spock doesn't remember everything exactly as it happened. And going back to mess with history, as we know, can have some real consequences. Then the Andorian says, This change in the timeline will put you in my place. Yet I'm not aggrieved. Andorians are not known for their charity. And I think this is kind of a nice moment. Yep. The the two first officers kind of respecting where each other has to go. A warrior race has few sympathies. But one we do possess is for family. In your time plane, you will live, and so will your mother. That is valuable. So, so this Andorian first officer, Thelen, is like, you know, he's hearing like what they're going to do. They're going to go back and restore the proper timeline so Spock can, can exist. And Thelen's probably saying like, just a minute. Hang on a second yeah. here. Do I exist? <laughs> what, what does that mean for Thelen? And right. Thelen I, it, it's it, like, again, like what young kid is going to get all this? is going to appreciate the, a moment like this where this other guy, the, the Andorian, who's gray in, in this episode, he's not blue. Yeah. You know, he should have been not blue. pink. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's almost <laughs> <Blue's> pink. <right. laughs> but, like, like, you're going, like, did you, like, sort of have this uh, impression rewatching, going, like, man, this is pretty damn heavy for... I, I did, and I wondered, too, if the writers of the animated series episodes, particularly Dorothy Fontana, if they, you know, when they sat down to write these, they, these could have been stories that germinated during the original. In fact, probably many of them did. But I wonder if when they're sitting down writing this, if they start thinking, okay, this is for kids, this is for kids, this is for kids, and then they say, oh, heck with it. You know, I'm not going to dumb this down, forgive me, kids, or make it more palatable uh, you know, because didn't Roddenberry say he didn't want this to be a cartoon per Correct. se? He wanted this to be their 
philosophy, their mantra that that Roddenberry and Fontana, because Dorothy Fontana, in addition to being uh, an associate producer on the animated series, she was also reprising her role from the original show as a story editor. And when they were assigning episodes for other people to write, some of which came from the original series, they said, write it like it's Star Trek. It's going to be shorter. And that was something that they had that they had to deal with. And it was a challenge for some of the writers. But they were said, it is Star Trek. Do not dumb it down. Write like you are writing for Star Trek. And that's so. So Dorothy Fontana had a hand in every. She was story editor for every yes. animated series episode. She was so. a story editor for every animated series episode. So but quality William, control. Yours was the only one she actually wrote. Oh, it was the herself. only one. Oh, okay, that's surprising mm-hmm. to me. Um, I'm going to continue to explode this what kids can handle sort of idea. <laughs> right. Scott, You're you right. have famously said that your first episode of Star Trek was Mirror Mirror. Correct. How, how old were you? I was six. Oh my god! This is my, yeah. and what is Mirror Mirror? It's an altered dimension in which some people are evil. So the, the idea that kids can't handle these ideas. It's like right. you think about like a movie like Pixar's Inside Out. Oh, Inside Out, which is all about different parts of the brain and all this stuff. Right. It is very sophisticated and it's a lot of fun. It has all sorts of things that are satisfying to kids. But man, kids can handle way more than we think. That How much can. did you grasp at six? How much do you think you grasped? Of it? See, that is a great question, William. And and what I remembered. About seeing that episode, Mirror Mirror, you know, the one with Spock has the, has the beard, you know, the goatee, yeah, yeah, yeah. the alternate universe. But you see, when I was six years old, it wasn't that there was, oh, they're in an alternate universe and uh, uh, like they have to get back and, uh, you know, whatever. What I remember about watching that episode, the reason that episode s- struck me and made me an instant fan is because of Captain Kirk. Is that right? I, to this day, when I was a kid, I wanted to be Captain Kirk. As a 54-year-old man, I still (laughs) want to be Captain Kirk. William Shatner's performance as Kirk inspired me. That's the reason I became a Star Trek fan. His speech at the end, you know, in every revolution, there's one man with a vision. Mm. Like, that, that was why. All the other stuff, Steve, you're talking about <laughs> didn't <Sure>. matter to me. <laughs> it, it was Shatner's interpretation, not just the not just the character. It was Shatner's interpretation. So not it was a Jack Lord, wasn't he up for the? Up he for the role? was up. He, yeah, he, he probably wouldn't have done this. Well, who knows? He, he, might, have, he might have done all right. <laughs> he he did okay with Hawaii Five O nine is, years. But I wonder if he would have affected you as much as he wanted fifty percent ownership of the show. That's why they didn't use him. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they lucked out with Shatner. I gotta say. <laughs> so. I like that the our two ship's first officers give each other the Vulcan salute, and I definitely like that Kirk says Spock and holds out his hand, and they shake hands before he goes. One, one other thing that's worth pointing out is that Spock is addressed during this scene as Commander Spock, not Lieutenant Commander Spock, like mm. he was addressed in episodes of the original series, like when they first meet Captain Christopher in Tomorrow is Yesterday, when they're on the bridge, he said, this is my first officer, Lieutenant Commander Spock. So somewhere along the way between the original series or during, you know, this timeline here, because we're in year five of the five-year mission, Spock was officially promoted from Lieutenant Commander to Commander, but the braids on his sleeve were still the same. Mm. 
Wow. Good eye. Like, like, like you said, William, the, I, I, I can be pretty scary with this stuff. <laughs> that, could be, that could be the byline, but these guys are scary. <laughs> the there you go. That sounds like a Dr. Demento thing. <laughs> so Spock steps through the Guardian and into the past and looks down at Vulcan, and that is the end of Act One. So Dorothy Fontana, when it came to writing yesteryear, she said, with regards to Kirk and Spock, she said, there's a continuity of friendship between Kirk and Spock, binding this adventure into the total Star Trek concept. Without those ties, yesteryear would merely have been an interesting adventure that had no real relationship to the overall show. And I think that, that whereas an episode like uh, the Tholian Web, like Kirk disappears from much of the show, in this episode, he once again disappears. Like, we're only two episodes into the animated series and in the second episode Kirk is not really in it that much that's really that's really interesting that's a I wonder I wonder you know we heard so many stories about Shatner wanting to make sure he had plenty of lines and more lines than everybody else my guess is by the time you get to the animated series he's like you know he didn't care right send me a check <laughs> yeah because yeah. like you said he was recording most of these lines not the first three episodes but beyond that remotely right and right. he has no are. recollection of the animated series at this point when I, asked I was that. at a convention yeah. uh last year and and uh you know shatner goes every year and he is like he he's as of this taping he's going to be 92 years old this year god bless him he has more energy than people a quarter of his age mm. so some a fan steps up to the microphone and starts asking about the animated series and he says i don't remember a thing about the animated series <laughs> so we're back in act two the first thing we see is a kind of almost star wars style speeder go by and then uh we see more vulcan and we hear in his subjective time log i have returned to the past in an attempt to restore the future i am home and i had almost forgotten its beauty this is a sensitive sort of episode that you were hearing here uh, uh so uh, another thing that's worth pointing out and this is really interesting so as we see spock approaching the city we see it's like a circular sort of image that storyboard and when they remastered the original series in 2007 and they updated a lot of the exterior visual effects, there were certain times when they did updates on set. And in the case of a mock time, when Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beamed down for Spock's Ponfar, uh, the Kunak Califi rather, uh, they are walking across this bridge to the area where the uh, ceremony is supposed to take place. And in the distance you see the city of Shikar. It's the same exact drawing, only it's CGI. But I like go back, rewatch the remaster version of Amok Time. In the beginning of Act 3, you will see the city of Shikar in the background. Also, in that moment, when Spock is walking towards the city, what do you see in the background? You see a moon. Mm. Now, as we learned in the first episode that ever aired, The Man Trap... Vulcan has no moon, Miss Uhura. And on the storyboard drawings, Roddenberry and Fontana said no moon. They should have taken out the moon, but they never did. And in Alan Dean Foster's book, he even says Vulcan has no moon. But uh, Yesteryear is the first of three animated series episodes in which we never see the bridge of the Enterprise. And also missing from this episode 
are Sulu and Uhura. Hmm. All right, then. Some trivia. And then we <laughs> get to the scene that you were talking about earlier, which is young Spock being bullied by some other Vulcan kids. You're a tyrant, Spock. You could never be a true Vulcan. That is not true. My father, your father brought Shane to Vulcan. He married a human. And this is the first time, William, we hear you as young Spock. So when you're watching this episode to prepare for this conversation and you are watching yourself. Act. <laughs> what was <laughs> that like emote. for you? <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember because I think I was just watching it and I was cringing because I still had was was very was very uh apprehensive about how this could have turned out using the audition tape so i was like kind of like you know okay okay and um i didn't have a vcr back then so i couldn't have said okay now that i've been through the first viewing let me sit back and try to you know enjoy it well, not wondering what line was going to come next and how i was going to botch it you know well, I definitely think we should cut your nine-year-old self some slack, being that <laughs> you were nine. You well, had, you were well, saying that kids can handle a lot more. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I also think we can forgive them when they had a bad director not give them good direction, uh, okay. and they, they use their audition rather well, than letting them do okay, it for real. Okay, thank you. I but but you, you no, knowing that the people that are watching it don't know that. Nope. And they're thinking, what's this kid? You know. That's the thing. That's what I was saying before. Mm. Is like I didn't know any of that okay. for all these years. Mm -hmm. And the fact that not only did I always like, wow, this, this kid did a great job voicing wow. kills. He's, he's acting like a kid, but there's still a logic to his. He's he still hasn't even like decided whether he was going to choose being <coughs> human or Vulcan yet, which is the yeah. point of this episode. But also, when I did see Star Trek 2009, that scene was inspired by your. Your take on young Spock, that was inspired by you because the actor who played young Spock in the scene in the J.J. The Abrams movie was like, he probably, J.J. Abrams probably said to this kid in 2009, making that episode. movie, watch this episode. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'll bet yeah, you that Jacob happened. Kogan, I think. And Spock loses his temper at the bullying and attacks back. And they even make fun of him by saying, You haven't even mastered a simple Vulcan neck pinch yet of the voice of one of the kids tormenting you, you know, Spock, is Keith Sutherland. That is Hal Sutherland's son. Yes, who got in touch with me not too long ago. Oh, um, oh tell us Facebook. about that. Yes, yes. So there's an official filmation. We're not, I don't know if it's official, but it's a fan group. And uh, we were going back and forth because he, uh, he did a, a recurring role. I think it was Lassie Adventures, I think he had a recurring role in that. And I remember mentioning to him how this probably as close as I would get to kind of unraveling some of the mysteries of my audition. And I remember telling him that it was the audition tape and, and how that. You know, and he said, yeah, that's kind of how my dad worked <laughs> kind of with his stuff, too. It was like just reading the lines. I hate to think that it was a that's good enough mentality, but it seems like I know the budget constraints constraints were severe, especially on Star Trek, what they had to pay the big names, that they cut corners. And, you know, I think, like, when it came to me mispronouncing Aichaya, you know, Dorothy Fontana was really upset about that. And they may have thought, do we want to bring Billy back in? To nah, it's good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder. But That's you think she would have had more input that could have said, no, 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 let's... let's because what would it cost? Another hundred bucks to bring me in? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what was wow. back then? You know? <laughs> How much? Uh, you know. 
And then we hear... My apologies, visitor. I regret you are witness to that unfortunate display of emotion on the part of my son. So, welcome back aboard Star Trek Mark Leonard, who is reprising his voice as Sarek from Journey to Babel. What a nice touch. He is one of three actors from the original series who returned for the animated series to reprise their very famous roles. The other two, Roger C. Carmel as Harry Mudd and Stanley Adams as... Uh, Cyrano Jones. Cyrano Jones. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, it, first of all, it's great to hear his voice. It's great to have Sarek back. Um, I think it adds, again, it's this thing of, yeah, you're making this for Saturday morning cartoons, but you're making doing that choice for like the college kids that love Star Trek and all because they're going to be super excited to hear Sarek's voice. And then Spock's reply is in the family. All is silence, which I think is a great line. And I also think is what leads to a hell of a lot of very dysfunctional families. <laughs> well, we're seeing we're seeing the seeds of a dysfunctional relationship here. We heard about it. We did see it in Journey to Babel, the uh, the tension between Spock and Sarek. And we're seeing that here with young Spock and Sarek. And it's funny. One of the things, and again, this is where it's like, look, it's a, it's a half-hour show. You can't get into that much. But the emotion of going back in time and seeing your, as an adult, seeing your parents. I mean, this is like Back to the Future. Like, that's got to be a weird thing. And seeing yourself as a child, there's a lot there. And this is where we hear that, Spock gives his name as Selleck, a cousin, and gives sort of the ancestry and says he's on the way to the family shrine to honor the gods. He's a cousin descended of Tapel and Sasak. Okay. Now, whether or not that's that's true, uh, I'm sure Sarek and Amanda know who Tapel and Sasak are. I'm sure he picked real names. I'm Absolutely. sure he picked real names, yes. You have a long way to go. Will you break your journey with us for a while, cousin? I am honored. And then there's this weird moment where Sarek keeps looking at him and says, It seemed I know you. So I'm very curious of what Sarek knows by the end of the episode. What's he really think? I was wondering the same thing. Do you know, like, like, I, you brought up Back to the Future. Mm -hmm. Whenever I watch Back to the Future and I get to the end of that movie and it's after Marty has gone back to the future, only this time. His father is a very successful and very handsome and very fit person. That there's this look that George McFly gives his son towards mm-hmm. the end of the film as if to say, I know who you are. Because Vulcans have really good memories. You know, like you would expect if Sarek met this guy that saved his kid's life. Yeah, he'd probably remember that, you know? Well, here's here's my question. When I was re-watching yesterday, again, I haven't watched this in a really, really long time. But I always loved it, but it's been a while since I, like, really re-watched it. You know what I thought to myself watching it this time, Steve? Mm-hmm. Where the hell is Michael Burnham? <laughs> well, this is a real problem. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, it's from Star Trek Discovery, in case you were wondering what we're talking about. Thank you. Um <laughs> So it's later on, and Sarek is uh, talking to Sp- young Spock and says, Spock, being Vulcan means following disciplines and philosophies that are difficult and demanding of both mind and body. Yes, father. I think Sarek is such a terrible father. <laughs> I think he's so... And what's great is, though, Dorothy Fontana is consistent with how she writes him. That is the character that she's created. And 
he he is condescending with young Spock. He is insulting about his experiencing emotions. And it's so funny because what he's presenting, he says, The time draws near when you will have to decide whether you will follow Vulcan or human philosophy. And then he talks about how great it is to be Vulcan. Doesn't say anything about being human. It's very, very clear what choice he wants him to make. And yet, yet uh, here is Amanda, who was human. Yep. No, it's 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 something. It's stuff we talked about when we talked about Journey to Babel. Of like, all right, this pure Vulcan guy. He married this woman. He's a hypocrite. Like, what what is his? What's his? What's your deal, Sarek? I think you're dealing with some stuff. Now, you know, William. I want to ask, like, when you, okay, you you've told this like incredible story about how. You went in for this audition that wound up being what they used, and no one else was there. You're just going off this this uh, really sort of vague direction from Hal Sutherland, and then you're watching the episode, and you're hearing your lines, and you're you're watching yourself interact with Spock and Sarek. Like, what was that like? What do you remember about like sort of seeing how it all fit in for the one of the first times you watched the episode complete? Well, it's hard to say. I think I was impressed by how it all fit together, yeah, sure. you know, uh, all things considered. Um, but I was going to say about my performance, I think that I can hear what I'm trying to do when they, when he tells me to, to read the lines with, with um, less feeling or less emotion, because I do, I do emote a little bit in that. But I, I think I remember one of his one of his direct Hal Sullivan's directions was to be more stilted, and I think you can hear me sometimes speak a little more properly like that, and I think that was my way of trying to get around that. Not British per se, but just kind of that is that is how you always get around mother, but it does not work with me. Kind of a yeah. you know kind of a thing. And I think that was about my only way that I could deal with the, the direction of, of of basically not trying to act out the lines. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I th- I guess it it you know I guess it inter- the interplay. If you're asking about the interplay, I think it was it worked out just fine. I mean, it, it sounds like we're bouncing off each other. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're all together in the booth. sure sure yeah sure. Mm-hmm. This next scene I think is a really cool scene with Spock. And his mother. I hope you were not disturbed by my son's behavior, Selig. No, my lady Amanda. I like that she's my lady. My lady. I think that's cool. Now, Amanda is not voiced by Jane Wyatt, who played her not only in Journey to Babel, but also Star Trek for The Voyage Home. Uh, Amanda is voiced by Majel Barrett because Jane Wyatt was just not available. And Majel also voiced the woman at the beginning... Yes. Uh, the h- historian or whatever. That's right. Uh, her name, uh, Gray, I think her name is. Uh, again, that that name came from Alan Dean Foster's book, not uh, from the episode itself. My young cousin has a more difficult road to travel than others. And you can see as the camera pushes in that this hits uh, Amanda and she says, You seem to understand him better than my husband. Wow. That's something. Amat, like, talk about like the timeline aspect of that. That that she's saying to Spock, you understand my son, who's you? It's just like, whoa, heavy. <laughs> God, as a six-year-old watching this, if you were six watching, would you have would you have processed all of that? No. No. Absolutely not. I mean, I, I, was, I was into the episodes of the live action show before I really got into the episodes of the animated series. Now, the animated series was definitely still on Saturday mornings when I found it. But I was already 
a Trekkie. I was already watching okay. the original series episodes every night uh, at 7 o'clock in Philadelphia. WPHL, Channel 17. 7 a.m.? 7, 7 p.m. Oh, p.m. Oh, but, oh, the, but, oh, the original. Oh. But, William, see, that's, that's, an, that's a great question because even, again, by this point, I was not getting some of the heavier elements of Star right, Trek. Right. It was the characters. I just liked these characters. I, they became my friends. That's what I liked about Star Trek. That's that's great, and and I don't think we watching it for the first time at nine. I don't think that I grasped that whole concept either. Now you wanted to give credit to the to the kids watching. Do you think they would have been able to? Some would have, but do you think the average I, viewer I mean, would have been able to follow all of that? Do I think that there were six and seven or eight year old mm-hmm. kids? who had fathers whose expectations of them they felt <laughs> well, they never no. met? Oh, Absolutely. No. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah. The boy goes through the Cosmon ordeal soon, does he not? Next month. And Spock, you could see the reaction of that, wait, wait, wait. I thought, you know, it's tomorrow. It's supposed to be tomorrow. Um, and she says, is something wrong? And he says, which I think is a really good line. I seem to have lost track of time. Wow. Yeah. That's that, that there's so much, again, this is just without the credits at the beginning and the end, 22 minutes. There's a lot going on here. And then we have more of Sarah and young Spock where again, I'm like, man, you're a rough, you're a rough guy because what he's saying is essentially, okay, you got this ordeal coming soon and most kids can, you know, fail at once. And that's not a big deal. But you who is struggling with more than most of these other kids, you can't fail it. You have to succeed in this death-defying thing. Thanks, Dad. It's like, yeah, man, you're right. What kid can't relate to that, right? If you fail, there will be those who will call you a coward all your life. I do not expect you to fail. No pressure, Dad. Yeah. Thanks Jeez, Dad. What if I do, Father? There is no need to ask that question. You will not disappoint me, not if your heart and spirit are Vulcan. I wrote down... Such a dick. <laughs> and that line was, what if I do, Father? What What if I do, Father? That was my way of trying to be... <laughs> to be a little more stilted. I to guess, be a little more... Yeah. What but if I do, Father? Because that's not how I speak. You're being told to, like, you know, bring it down to, to be more mm-hmm. more flatter, to sound more logical. But, you know, you're you're a nine-year-old kid doing this for the first you're time. Trying to learn you're, to act. And that's what makes it just so perfect. Because you're being told... Don't don't enunciate emotion like like a Vulcan child would not enunciate emotion. Right. But you know what? A kid that choosing the way of logic would still have emotion in him. That's why so, he's only now being told you have to make a choice. So are there are parallels be- between the Spock character and me in in the recording studio being told to, to tone down my emotion. That's a really good point. <laughs> that is exactly that is exactly my point. So my struggle is real. Your conversation, your your uh, being directed, for lack of a better term, by Hal Sutherland, is sort of paralleling the way that Sarek is directing Young Spock. Because you know, you 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 know, it's not like you had acted so many times before. This was your first time, but through that uncertainty, uh, it you wound up delivering. A performance that even if you went back to do it again, you got it right the first time. You really got it right the first time. Like when I hear this, watch this episode, and I and I'm watching 
you know, your performance as young Spock and then reading all the stuff about the audition and now hearing about it. I'm like, you know, if you did go back, you would have like maybe not it would not have been as good because you would have been thinking too hard about it. Well, that's a good point. It was <laughs> I guess it was more natural this way. Absolutely. I was definitely in turmoil trying to figure out what was going on. I would have been able to correct the, correct the pronunciations. Oh, right. Sure. Uh, that kind of thing. Speaking but, of which, that is where we are because we are about to meet Spock's pet Salot. Ichaya or Ichaya? Ichaya. Ichaya. William is now canon. Thanks to you. <laughs> thanks to me. You have affected the Star Trek canon. Now, now this is what's this is what's so great, and this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that the animated series really did evolve Star Trek. We heard in Journey to Babel about Spock's pet Salat, described by Amanda as a fat teddy bear to McCoy's amusement. Now we actually get to see Aichaya. The storyline involving the sellout was not included in the episode's original pitch to Gene Roddenberry. Fontana came up with the Aichaya, uh, the sellout, in the outline form. The original design of the sellout was illustrated by sci-fi artist Alicia Austin for a science fiction fanzine. Fontana saw the illustration, said, that's great. But Fontana said, you know what? Can you break off one of the teeth? I want to give the impression that this pet is old. And uh, then storyboard artist Bob Klein took it from there. It's a, it's a nice design. And as, as, he, as young Spock is talking to his pet, we hear old Spock log trying to figure out this date thing. And also says something interesting, which is... The Kazwan ordeal is an ancient rite of warrior days. When Vulcans turned to logic, they reasoned they must maintain the tests of courage and strength to keep pure logic from making them weak and helpless. And I think there is this... I mean, that's definitely very clear with a lot of Vulcan stuff we have of the mix of logic and old-school, severe rituals. And then we hear young Spock say... No, Aichaya. This is my own test. I have to do it alone. Stay. Because he's going to go off and try to do the test by himself. But Aichaya goes, follows him anyway. Mm-hmm. Aichaya, go home. You are too old and too fat for this. And Aichaya still doesn't go home. The boy, Spock, should be moving toward the Langan Mountains. He... I had much to prove to myself. Um, and we're back with Sarek and Amanda, who are worried that both Spock and their visitor is gone. This cousin Selleck, something strange about him. You don't think he'd harm Spock? I don't know, Amanda. The stranger danger there, maybe? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I mean, if some weird dude shows up at your yeah, house exactly. and then he and your kid disappear. See, now today, they'd be like, call the cops. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> totally. And then we're up in the mountains, we hear a roar, and then Spock is being chased by a creature. Okay, so the roar you hear is not Godzilla. It's not. But it sounds like Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. Are you sure it's not Godzilla? It's not Godzilla. It's a lot smaller than Godzilla, but still deadly. The wild Lamatia which Aichaya saves young Spock from the Lamatia, and then Spock saves Aichaya and young Spock. But by then, it's a little too late for Aichaya. 
Yeah, they move away, and uh, and as they're walking, Achaya comes with them, slower and slower, and then there's this conversation. Thank you for helping me, and Achaya. It was my duty, Spock. Mother says you should always say thank you. The Lady Amanda is known for her graciousness. I mean, even though they were directed, especially Fontana, who was a story editor, told the writers, don't write for a kiddie show, write like Star Trek. There is a lot of educational stuff going on here with regards to like saying thank you and treating your mother with respect and that kind of thing. Uh, This next thing is fun. Do you think I'll ever be able to do that neck pinch as well as you? I dare say you will. (laughs) Because it's him. (laughs) So... With all of the names given to rituals and mountains and uh, 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 things that the Vulcans have to go through, whether it's the Ponfar or the Calafi, you would think that they would have come up with a Vulcan name for the Vulcan neck pinch <laughs> instead of just calling it the neck pinch. That's funny. Um, and then I think this next moment is really interesting, and I wish I had a little more of it, which is that young Spock is talking about his parents and says, They confuse me. Father wants me to do things his way, and Mother says I should. But then she goes... And doesn't finish the sentence. And I'm like, well, what are you saying is going on? Because I think not... You know what? Again, I'm, I continue to have problems with uh, Sarek. And I think this is a weird codependent relationship where... Why is Mom not standing up for Spock? Why is Mom... She just says, yeah, I guess you got to do what your father says. Have you found what it says in the script there? But then she goes and dot, dot, dot. He stops and looks away from Spock, embarrassed at what he was about to admit. But this is, I mean, I, you know, I've mentioned it before. The ellipse, three little dots at the end of a line in a script, is one of the biggest tools a writer has. But usually the actor should be able to get what it was they didn't say. You know what I mean? I don't know what Spock was about to say here. And I remember wondering what, she goes. I mean, that's kind of like a slang term for says. And then he went or she goes, lit, yeah. you know. And I'm, I remember saying, is she going somewhere or is she saying something? But then she goes. Yeah, it's, 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 this is where the writing is actually not that good. We should be able to figure out what it was that he didn't say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is a human woman with strong emotion and sensitivities. She embarrasses you with those traits. And you are afraid when you see them in yourself. How did you know? There is some human blood in my family line. I think young Spock is real lucky that Selleck came to visit. Absolutely. And Not just for saving his life, but for this. The Spock's, Spock's point, Spock when he is trying to help young Spock, and he says... What you do not yet understand, Spock, is that Vulcans do not lack emotion. It is only that ours is controlled. Spock is admitting to his younger self, yes, we have emotions. And this, this goes into just how, how Leonard Nimoy's performance, like how he really got it. Because it's not that Vulcans don't have emotions. They do. They just know how to control them. And then that's the moment that Aichaya goes down. And that is the end of Act 2. Act 3, we come back. Something unexpected has again occurred. The Selat. Aichaya was struck by the poisonous claws of the Lamachia he fought. He is dying unless we can find a healer and soon. And this is the what you brought up earlier, this line that you weren't happy with the performance because you didn't have the previous line to play off of. We cannot get him back to the city to a healer. 
He is too large to move. Then what? You are a Vulcan. What is the logical thing to do? I can bring a healer here. Thank you. <laughs> and at first, Spock says, I'll go, because it's dangerous. No, this is my duty. No one else can do it for me. So he runs back for help. Young Spock runs back for help. And but to then, be clear, this didn't happen to the Spock that we know. Right. He never had this experience. So this young Spock is having to do something scarier that takes more courage than our Spock had to do. Right. That's right. That's right. This is where, where the timeline, where the, the, there, there is a change. There is a change in the timeline. There is a change. Wow. See, this is where the episode really started to affect me emotionally. Watching it this time, unlike all the other times I had watched it. So, older Spock kneels down before I chai. This did not happen before. My life decision was made without the sacrifice of yours, old friend. And I start to get really emotional because just a couple months ago, my dog, 16-year-old Pomeranian, named Max, who was just... Just the best Pomeranian ever, the cutest dog, really smart. During the lockdown that we experienced during uh, the first year of the pandemic, um, I was alone. My my uh, girlfriend was at work. She still had to go into work. And I was home alone with Max. And, you know, during that time, we really, really bonded. And just recently, you know, he was 16 years old. His health started to go down quickly. And we had to make a decision Mm. where we did not want him to suffer and we had to put him down and it was so hard and we miss him very, very much. And I got really emotional watching this. I I mean, I knew that it was part of the storyline, but I haven't watched it in so long where I had an experience to tie to it that made me relate to it and affected me really emotionally. I mean... Uh, th- this is one of it, it got me too, not to the same degree, but we've all, I mean, we've all had those pets. Yeah. And I just went, man, if I went back to see the dog that I had when I was a little kid, and and again, this goes to like if we had more time, I would have loved the moment where Selick sh- Selick shows up, and Ichaya looks up and goes over and and oh. sees him and goes, and they go, wow, he's never responded. He really likes you, and he's like, oh, I, you know, I'm good with oh, animals. That'd be great, you know, like yeah. that sort of. Because this is, you got to go back and see the dog you had when you were a kid. Yeah, you know? that, 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 oh, yeah, you know, he's only like that with Spock. Yeah. But then Sela comes through the room and, and I try and runs over to him. But we have yeah. so little time. Uh, but I agree uh, with you. This moment of him with his old pet is really neat. And then we have um, young Spock. There's like a tentacle thing he has to run through. He's got a, this is quite a journey. Gets to, uh, to the village, you know, goes to a door. An old Vulcan opens the door. I like his design and says, The hour is late. I trust your errand is urgent. Who is this voice, Scott? Gee, take a wild guess, Steve Morris. Major Barrett? <laughs> James Stewart earning his pay for the week. What's so funny is I am 100% certain, certain he got paid for the day. So if he did five voices that day or if he did one voice that day. Still got the same thing. Same thing. Yeah. I'm certain. You are Spock, son of Sarek, are you not? Yes, healer. I have heard of you. I have heard of a tendency toward what humans call practical jokes. Yeah, I want to know about that line. What is that all about? I, I don't know. I, you I, don't I, know where did that come from? 
<laughs> and I don't. And honestly, I don't believe that young Spock does anything like that. I think he's so desperate to please his dad. I don't think he's doing practical. And he says, jokes. "I did that once a long time ago. Yeah, maybe say a couple years ago." Healer, I would not call you out unless a life was in danger. Have you ever heard the son of Sarek was a liar? So they get his medications, they head off, we're back with Spock, the ship flies up. You made the desert crossing most efficiently. You will not disappoint Sarek in your Kazwan. I wanted only to help Aichaya. He was my father's before he was mine. This thing's been around a long time with this family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A Vulcan would face such a loss without tears. How? By understanding every life comes to an end when time demands it. Loss of life is to be mourned, but only if the life was wasted. That's, again, I mean, you're giving more credit than I am, but as a, I, I just was watching it, just marveling how this was on a Saturday morning. That's right. I mean, really, and, and honestly, William, like when, when I'm taking my notes and here we are talking about this episode in such detail, probably, I'm going to guess, the most detail you've ever detailed conversation about this you've ever done <laughs> for sure no, i'm <laughs> um, loving it though but that that an episode like this a, a half hour 24 minute animated cartoon holds up to the kind of scrutiny that a 50 minute live action car uh, series does that's impressive but here's what's interesting to me our spock the what i'm calling our spock at this moment the guy who is selic he never had a, his cousin tell him these words because Aichaya didn't get hurt when he was a kid. So he never had someone give him wisdom about loss and death and things like that. Whereas this version of young Spock does hear that. Oh, I think I know where you're going with that. Well, this is where I go like the the Spock that grows up is not the same person that our Spock is because he had this experience. He lost his pet and was given some deep words of wisdom by this cousin, you know. But also at the same time, you are you are looking moving forward at a version of Spock. This is well, which version is it? Because if you if if Marty McFly goes back in time, when he this is this is what time travel stories they can't make sense. They never will make sense. And trying to make them sense is a fool make sense is a fool's errand. But Marty McFly, when he shows up back in the future, when his dad is successful and they live in a different house, does he have any memories that make sense for his childhood? Well, okay, so that's a great his question. His childhood didn't happen. But but when Spock goes back through the portal to, you know, the Enterprise and Kirk is there waiting and yeah. Kirk remember Kirk, Kirk is aware of everything and no one else is, only he, you know, the future is restored, so to speak. But- that Spock will now have the memories. Will he? Well, look what happens in the Wrath of Khan. What does Spock do at the end of the Wrath of Khan? Would he have made that decision if he never got this wisdom? To by sacrifice his, his life? Yes. Oh, 100% he would have. You think, you think that would not have changed at all? Wouldn't, wouldn't Spock have sacrificed his life in the... How many times is Kirk and Spock ready to sacrifice their life to save everybody? Absolutely. Of course he would have. Absolutely agree. But he might not be as wise. But this is the thing. This is the thing. I, I don't think that the show doesn't indulge in this idea. And I don't think Star Trek history has ever indulged in this particular idea. Let's go a little further because there's one more point that I think might change uh, Spock's life a little bit. It has been too long. No antidote known will save his life. 
Is there nothing you can do? I can prolong his life, but he will be in pain. Or I can release him from life. And that is exactly what the vet told me. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, I mean, I've had to face that choice too. It is not a fun... I'm sure a lot of listeners, a lot of our enterprisers, yeah. sure. as we call them, yes. had to deal with this. I will need your decision. He is your pet. And young Spock goes to stand on the cliff and our Spock goes and puts his hand on shoulder. And after a moment's thinking, he says, Release him. It is fitting he dies with peace and dignity. Wow. Well, and this is a big experience that this Spock had to, a decision that he had to make that our Spock didn't have to make. And of course, in my opinion, the right decision. So when it came to euthanizing Aichaya, Fontana felt really strongly about teaching children how to deal with the death of a pet. And that's you know, great. Here she is following her own advice in writing writing this like she would write a Star Trek episode, but with a with a goal to teach children about dealing with the death of a pet. She said, when a pet dies, the child is devastated by it. By the way, so it's the adult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the parents find it difficult to explain the situation. We were trying to put across a lesson to children that when it comes time for an animal to die, if he must go, it should be with dignity. And that is what young Spock says. Now, I know this was a long time ago, William, but when you were reading the lines for Hal Sutherland and you got to this point in the lines that you were reading, were you like, well, I honestly don't think I knew what was going on. Think, remember, I'm reading the lines isolated, so I don't think I made any connection to a a cohesive story here. I don't think I was aware that it was my pet. I really don't think so. And it probably wasn't until I saw the episode the first time that I realized how it all fit together because I didn't have a cop I didn't have a copy of the script to take home, so I couldn't have read it later and pieced it together. When you saw the final episode and saw what that line was in context, I think I was really surprised, wow. used to what Saturday mornings offered. And I think that, you know, I, I, didn't I hear that NBC was a bit concerned about this? As, as fate would have it, NBC execs wanted the ending changed, fearing that it would upset kids. Fontana refused. Roddenberry supported her decision. So after the episode aired, not only did NBC never receive one complaint, but they only got positive feedback, positive feedback from parents who were pleased that it addressed such a difficult topic for children. And that's exactly what Dorothy Fontana said. She wanted it to be a reference point. Yeah. If something like that were to happen to the family, to the child shortly after, they, they could say, remember young Spock? Remember his pet? Yeah. What he had to do? Dignity? And it would have been a teaching moment Amazing. for them. Amazing. It still works as a teaching thing. Agreed. Um, and young Spock says goodbye to Aichaya, and we head home, where he apologizes to Sarek, but says it was necessary. I trust you can explain why it was necessary. There was a decision to be made. A direction for my life had to be chosen. I chose Vulcan. And again, I think in real solid filmmaking, who do we cut to then? Is we cut to Amanda, who closes her eyes at that decision. Um, there's a lot in there, I think. It is good, then. You have comported yourself with honor. 
Thank you, Father. If you will excuse me now, I have some business to conduct with schoolmates. Business? A demonstration of the Vulcan neck pinch. Right. <laughs> so Selleck taught him the Vulcan neck pinch. I too must make my farewells. Your hospitality has been most kind, but I must journey on. You saved my son's life, Selleck. There is no way I can fully repay you for that. And I think this is another point where we can say the timeline might have changed slightly. Try to understand your son, Sarek of Vulcan. It will be repayment enough for me. Now, did he say that to him in the previous timeline where Aichaya didn't die? No. So he says, so did that change Sarek's behavior towards Spock over the next 20 years? Well, if it did, then Journey to Babel would have would have played out very differently. I mean, even if he was 5% more sensitive to Spock, that's a big change. My home is yours if you pass this way again. I think I shall not. In other words, uh, uh, that's not going to happen. Unless we get taught <laughs> in some weird time loop and I have to come back and do this again. Right? <laughs> oh, no. And they give each other the Vulcan salute, and then we cut back to present day. We hear the travelers returning, and there is Spock. One small thing was changed this time. A pet died pet well that wouldn't mean much in the course of time it might to some that line the way he says it right he says one thing did change a pet died and kirk's like oh well that's not going to change anything i was very disappointed in kirk for that reaction i'm sorry like, even as a child well that couldn't have been excuse me yeah yeah spock <laughs> is like too much spock is I mean, even for an animated yes. series yes. like you could see spock is like wait a minute hang on it's yes more than just a pet yes yeah um and i think spock is wondering too did that change the timeline when he says it might to some like maybe it did and they beam up well 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 so you two finally got back from your vacation and we hear that he's been trying to set up annual physicals, and he seems to have no strange re reaction to Spock. So Kirk says, Welcome aboard, Mr. Spock. Never mind the chit-chat. I've got my medical scanners all set up for a Vulcan. Dr. McCoy, you do not know your good fortune. If the times were different, you would have to recalibrate for an Andorian. <laughs> McCoy's like, look, if you're huh? trying to joke, you're not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what this felt like? A Gene Kuhn ending. Thank you. Yes, sir. A Kuhnism. Yeah, a nice little joke. I mean, this really is an episode of Star Trek, and that that is the end of it, and it ends like a real episode of Star Trek. But so I, I still go back to what happened to Thelen. Like, like there is a timeline out there where Thelen, the Andorian who became the first officer of the Enterprise, has this whole other history coming soon. From CBS Paramount on Paramount Plus, a <laughs> brand new Star Trek series about Thelen. <laughs> so, so that character wasn't acknowledged uh, again. Uh, well, in fan, in sort of the the books that have been written, the fan books that have been written, uh, that that character actually has been expanded upon. A lot of things okay. from this element from this episode have been expanded upon. Uh, there was an episode of Star Trek Enterprise called The Forge, where we see a sellout. It is a CGI version of a sellout, so it actually did make it into a live-action episode of Star Trek. So, so like can I give you a quick alternate? This is the alternate ending. Yes. So we have our little coonism where there's a little joke in the transporter room, and then we cut to Felon in the Talosian cage, 
held there by the Telosians as he screams while being tortured. <laughs> <laughs> or, or after uh, they walk out of the transporter room, uh, they're walking down the hall towards the turbolift, towards the turbolift that will take them to the bridge. The turbolift door opens, and out of the turbolift door walks Thelen. In a red shirt. In a red shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Steve, I, I see where your head is at. So, so this episode was submitted for any consideration for the 1973-74 season of the animated series. Uh, it did not win that year. It did win the next year for the 74-75 season. Yesteryear it did win Best Contemporary Science Fiction Film at the second annual Science Fiction and Fantasy Film Convention in Los Angeles in November of 1973. And as I mentioned, the episode was novelized by Alan Dean Foster along with Beyond the Farthest Star and One of Our Planets is Missing, the first three episodes of the animated series in the first entry of the book series Star Trek Log One. Uh, this was uh, Star Trek's first Emmy Award, right? Was for the animated series? Yes, it was. It, yes. There were plenty of nominations. Uh, it, there were plenty of nominations for the original series. Yes. Now, it may or may not have happened that Star Trek actually did win an Emmy for visual effects for the third season episode, The Tholian Web. Um, that it sort of goes back and forth. Uh, 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 the, the visual effects Emmys were not part of the television broadcast. I see. So there was a separate ceremony that was not televised where I believe the Tholium Web was honored with an Emmy, which would have made that the first Emmy that Star Trek ever sure. got. But it's like there's some something with records where it's never actually been confirmed. Nope. So so what actually is confirmed is that the animated series did win an Emmy for uh best children's programming, daytime Emmy, and and uh, you know that's that's the first Emmy it, Star in Trek that ever category. Got it. Well, I don't know what it was up against, but you could only imagine, you know, best children's. <laughs> it's but like whoa, Star Trek. You are part of a series that won Star Trek technically its first Emmy. What do you think of that? I think it's in spite of my performance, <laughs> not because of it. <laughs> well, I think your performance totally works in an episode of Star Trek that feels like an episode of Star Trek, and I think that this is the you know we talked about. I, I had my little rules of what makes a good episode of Star Trek, and they were an interesting science fiction idea, a sense of adventure, and real emotional content. And I think this has them. You know, Absolutely. I mean, like, does it have the limitations of, of the animated series in terms of, you know, the music and, you know, the not amazing animation? Sure, it does. But in terms of really understanding Spock and his character and putting him through an interesting emotional story... 100% works. Uh, I agree. And listen, uh, you know, watching this episode for the first time in so long, putting it into the context, continuing the overreaching arc that we we went through the original series with, now expanding it and taking it into the animated series, treating the animated series, William, like basically the fourth season of Star Trek. It works. It works works and of course it works because you have Roddenberry, you have Fontana, you have the voices of the original actors. And Hal Sutherland said about uh the animated series and uh particularly this episode, I couldn't do anything with the camera or the action on that one. The pacing of it was quite different and I was very surprised. I couldn't reach a stride of some excitement. 
It was a very emotional story, not an action story, and that was my impression at the time. Dorothy Fontana said, I am most fond of yesteryear because of the Vulcan, Spock, Spock's childhood elements. I could put into that that I could never have done on the original series. I did not consider writing any other episode of the animated series. I liked how yesteryear came out, the story it told, the emotions it touched for both Spock and the audience, and I was very happy with it. That's great. I mean, I feel like I kind of already gave my final thoughts, so... So, William, what what is your now that you've revisited this, you've done this deep dive with us? What's your impression now of this show that you were a huge part of fifty years ago? Well, I not to repeat myself as I've been doing the whole time, but I wish I could have had another opportunity to perform. But like you said, maybe it wouldn't have had the spontaneity or the confusion, or I don't know. But uh, I'm very proud to have been a part of it. And it's, it's, uh, it's incredible that 50 years later that a gentleman like you are still interested in it and that I have uh, memories of my experience at, at Filmation, and I do cherish those. And um, far from that, I, you know, I, I, I'm just very grateful. And I thank you very much for inviting me. It's been an honor. And I've learned, I've learned so much in our visit. So have we. Thank you. Yeah, so thank have you. we. So uh, that's what we think of yesteryear. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts of this, uh, in all likelihood, the greatest episode of the animated series. If you want to reach us, you can do it, you can do it on our Facebook page. You can search for us on Twitter at Enter Incidents, on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. You can subscribe to the show at all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and YouTube, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you want to leave a review, you should leave a review. Why haven't you leave or left a review? Time for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that. If you want to support the show, you can do it by just clicking on that show link in the show notes at Anchor, where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month, as much as $9.99 a month. And if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you're interested in movies about young kids going through a rite of passage, we've covered a bunch of them on the Cinephiles, including Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, The Karate Kid, the Goonies, and one of my personal favorites, The Black Stallion. Oh, Black Stallion's a great movie, yeah. William, if people wanted to find you on the internet, how would they go about doing that? Well, through my Dr. Demento show connections, I do have a website, whimsicalwill.com, and my email is whimsicalwill at gmail.com. I keep an archive of my past year of Demented News reports streaming on the on the website, so you can uh, drop by and, and say hi. Yeah. Scott, how would people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And I want to second what Steve Morris said about leaving a review for us at Apple Podcasts. We are pouring our heart and souls into Enterprise Incidents, treating the animated series with the same level of respect that we treated the original series. And to be joined by by William Simpson here for for this classic episode of Star Trek bar none, is just how much we care about Star Trek. And we will really appreciate a review from you. And of course, yes, uh, your generosity in supporting uh, Enterprise Incidents in that way would also be really, really great. Uh, thank you so much, William, so much for your time. Uh, this really has been so, so, so special. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm honored. So where are we going next on Enterprise Incidents? Well, we have discovered on Star Trek aboard the Enterprise that one of our planets is missing. An episode that was written by Mark 
Daniels, the director of 14 episodes of the original series. So one of our planets is missing is next on Enterprise Incidents. Please join us. And until then, keep going boldly.